Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 will be in verses 25 through 29 this morning. I'm grateful for Timothy, our pastoral resident, for preaching in my stead last week. I was in New Mexico preaching uh, at Desert Springs Church and greeted them for you. And we've had a handful of visitors over the years from that church and even some members. You can figure out who they are. Just get to know each other. You'll eventually run into them. A lot of folks from Michigan in our church, not so many from New Mexico, so when you bump into them, that's them. Well, yesterday, our family was in Atlanta and drove up, and there was a car that caught my attention. It couldn't not catch my attention, an SUV, middle-aged woman. Uh, I, I don't know why I said that. It wasn't, it wasn't a youngster in like a small beat-up car. I wasn't expecting this. And she pulled up behind me and was moving, maneuvering her way around quite aggressive. Uh, I, I honked. Christy and I were in separate cars. She would not have honked. She has a much higher threshold for honking and imagines herself getting murdered when this kind of thing happens. I just imagine myself murdering when this thing happens. So that woman received a warning from me on the road. It wasn't 10 seconds later that flashing lights and I thought this better be for her and sure enough it was for her and she was pulled over. I don't know if she got ticketed or warned but either way a ticket or a warning functions as a warning from law enforcement. Um, it's, not so ser- it's not so unserious when you're, you're on the road, maybe a little bit humorous uh, when you get home a couple hours later. But this morning, we have before us not a warning from a fellow driver or a warning from law enforcement, but a warning from heaven. Let's read together. Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is God's word for us this morning. Well, the book of Hebrews has dealt quite a bit with this matter of how we relate with the Old Testament as Christians. These original readers were tempted to go back to relating with God through those Old Testament commands and structures because Jesus was getting them in trouble, worshiping, after all, that by their confession, crucified and risen and reigning Lord over all the earth, including Rome. And with all of its 
invisible features, an invisible Christ, an invisible priest in the heavens. There is something attractive about the Old Testament ways of relating with God. And sometimes we're tempted to cook up new measurables, new, new things to see and to taste and to hear and to, to sense as a way of quantifying and measuring and sorting out who's good and bad and how to worship God and how not to worship Him. No, the, the New Testament, the New Testament religion, Christianity, the salvation that's come in Christ is profoundly invisible, which is way harder than anything you could do to, to measure, but empowered by the invisible Spirit of God. So we're not to go back to Old Testament ways. And yet the author of Hebrews keeps quoting the Old Testament, keeps helping us to draw on the Old Testament in order to relate with God properly, properly as Christians. We have some tendencies in talking about the Old and New Testaments, that first part of our Bible and the second part, Christ and forward. And some of them are better and some are worse. It's okay to call it old and and new if by that we mean that there's progress in God's revelation and that Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection functions as the center of God's plan and all that he does for us. Everything he has done and said has led to Christ and everything that happened after Christ has come is, is expounding, interpreting, explaining, and exalting him. So old and new is a good way to to speak of the two sides of our Bible. Obsolete and current. Sometimes we talk about, oh, well, that's in the Old Testament, so it's, it's irrelevant or it's obsolete or it, it doesn't count. Uh, fill in the blank. And there's something to that. The author of Hebrews has said that the Old Covenant through Moses is obsolete. It's okay to speak that way if by that we mean that those Old Testament scriptures and the Old Covenant represents God's promise and Christ represents God's fulfillment. And in that sense, Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. Sometimes I'm afraid we talk about God in ways that are entirely inappropriate by not thinking carefully about the difference. Maybe the God of the Old Testament was stringent and serious and the God of the New Testament, maybe it's the same God, but he's really chilled out. He's the mellowed out God which means maybe coming to God was really hard in the Old Testament because he was just a hard God. Uh, But in the New Testament, coming to God is super easy because he's super easy. Well, look down at our text this morning. We have two Old Testament quotes. We have one in verse 26. Yet, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's a promise through the prophet Haggai in the Old Testament, concerning something that God will yet do. So, he's going to shake heaven and earth, judge heaven and earth. 
And he promised that, the Old Testament. Old Testament God. But wait, he's going to do it. Yet in the future, same God. And then you've got this nice verse on worship down here. Who doesn't like worship? Worship's great. Verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Wait a second. Acceptable worship. With reverence and awe. Why? Our God is a consuming fire. Well, that's an image from Deuteronomy. The whole, the, the all-consuming, sheer majesty and holiness of God. Same God. There it is. Right there on the page of the New Testament. Oh, at our best, we know better. But... This morning's sermon will help us think carefully about God so we might perceive him as he is and not miss anything so that we might worship him in an acceptable way, a way that is acceptable to him. Now, this morning's sermon is a warning. It's a warning to us from heaven. It's a warning to us from heaven that is no less serious and searing than any Old Testament warning. And it is a warning from heaven that, it is, that is no less and, of course, more encouraging and hopeful than anything we find in the Old Testament. And there is plenty. Same God, thank God, we find ourselves at this point in the story, the one story of his plan of salvation. this sermon is a warning from heaven. It is a warning concerning real danger. It's a warning with a real way of escape. And it's a warning that helps us with what we can't help but do if we hear this warning correctly and with ears to hear. We have a voice, a vision, and a vocation this morning. First, a voice, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. A warning considering serious danger. We know what competing voices are. Uh, in your own home, perhaps it's the, the TV and your spouse, or it's the kid and 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 the spouse. I was in an Uber a week ago, and it was one of the worst experiences of my life. Um, I was very tired. I'd traveled across the country the day before, and I was with, with some friends I was eager to be with. Um, I wasn't feeling great. I was in the front seat of the Uber. I'm usually happy to engage with an Uber driver. In this case, I was super unhappy to engage because I wasn't feeling well. Also, all the competing voices. There was the radio which was on kind of loud. There was the GPS talking. Um, and then my Uber driver was talking to me, which is fine, but that was a third channel. Uh, and then my two friends in the back were having a conversation I was kind of interested in, and I couldn't track with that. And um, I got out of the car as soon as I could. I don't mean to make myself out to be bad-natured. We're on a, off to a bad start in this sermon so far. I realize that. <laughs> But it's just how the material is coming. 
I got out of the car, competing voices, voices talking at the same time. And then there's a such thing as conflicting voices, voices that are maybe talking at the same time and saying opposite, opposite things. Our readers had some conflicting voices. They had the voice of their community and their political rulers who not merely condescended and shamed but threatened them. Uh, they were for the taking. Some of their friends had their, pl- their property plundered and they rejoiced in this because Jesus was plundered on the cross and they saw that as sharing in his sufferings and their right to rejoice in that. It was a sign that they were really with him because they were treated like he was treated. Nevertheless, it's really exhausting to be told you're wrong. He, he didn't rise from the dead. And as it is, the whole system of morality you believe in is not only wrong, but, but wicked and evil. And this Bible is a problem and it's the problem in our age and you're the problem. Well, that's one voice. And it's not... It's not every person, hardly, that doesn't know the Lord, but it is, it is the way that Satan speaks to us through so many channels in our own day. And that is not the voice of God from Scripture. From Scripture, we have the voice of the Lord Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He's the one who, who promises to come back. Every time we share the Lord's table, we, we do so Remembering his death until he returns. That's how he spoke to us. We have the voice, voice around us. We have voices from within us competing even. As we talk to ourselves about how God is good and he's true and we're not going to be like Adam in the garden and forsake his word. And then it's a delight to the eyes and it seems good for food. And man, there seem like some good reasons for leaving off, leaving off Christ, for, for disobeying Christ, for turning from him. It's conflicting voices. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Very direct. Isn't that helpful? That's the word of God for us this morning. Friends, do not refuse him who is speaking. Let me draw your attention to that word, is. We're going we're gonna to look at this passage, this prism of this verse or so, through that word is speaking when is now present tense don't refuse him who is speaking apparently the Lord is speaking now where from from heaven they did not escape when they refused him when he warned them and spoke to them on earth refused him who warned them the Lord through his servant Moses, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from, from heaven. And who is this one from heaven spoken of in the book of Hebrews? Who is this now? None other than the Lord Jesus, that one become man who was who is ascended to the Father's right hand, who is enthroned, who is in heaven at the Father's right hand. The Lord Jesus speaks through the Holy Spirit. We've picked up on these verses. This author preaching this sermon through this book has quoted the Old Testament saying, 
Therefore, the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, the author of this book is quoting the Old Testament, saying it is the Holy Spirit speaking now with a word and a command to you to turn to him today. This book is living and active. The author has also said that. A living and active word. It's not merely this Bible, a, an old ancient book. We don't come here to study an old book for how valuable it is for us today. We don't come here to study this ancient collection of, of volumes because they're time-tested. And as it is, so many things are changing in the world. It's something we can hold on to. That's not why we come here. That's not why I gave myself to this book this week. It's not why you've read it this week. It's not why you're here this morning. We're here because we believe that this is God's word to us now. And it's not that as we read it, there's new meaning that he's giving to us that is apart from, in contradiction with, or running in parallel with, but unrelated to the original meaning. So we don't read the Bible and have things pop into our head and say, well, that's God speaking. God is saying something to me here, simply using the material on the page. No, the very words themselves are the word of God. He is speaking to us through the human authors. And we, 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 we get our learning in this from the way the author has used the Old Testament scriptures. He quotes the Old Testament and he makes arguments from the Old Testament. And he applies those Old Testament scriptures in very particular and precise ways. And thus says God is speaking to us. Speaking to us now, presently. An astounding thought. Where from? From heaven. He's speaking through his son by the Holy Spirit. And how does he do this? Well, he does it through scripture. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says in chapter 3, he quoted the scriptures. Today, if you hear his voice, well, the author is reading scripture. You read the scriptures and God speaks through his word. But he also speaks through us to one another. As we exhort one another as long as it is called today. And he speaks through leaders as we handle the word. Chapter 13. Who spoke to you the word of God. This generation that received this letter would not have heard Jesus speaking in person. This generation, the second generation, removed from that original group, can nevertheless be told in the very first verses of this book, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. So long ago, God spoke in many ways and at many times, through prophets, through dreams, but in these last days, which is now, we're in the last days, that is the days that the Old Testament was looking forward to, the Messiah, Jesus, has come. In these last days, although he has been raised and is at his Father's right hand, God has spoken to us by his Son. He's spoken to the original readers who didn't walk around with Jesus. He spoke to them by the Son. And so too, he has spoken to you and me and speaks now to you and me by the Son. 
That's what we're doing here. That's why we come every Lord's Day. Oh, there's better and worse preaching. And from this preacher, there's better and worse Sundays. I don't like to think of it like shooting a basketball and sometimes you miss and sometimes you make it. I've used that in my mind before because when you play basketball or when you watch it, you can tell they don't, they don't lose too much sleep over a miss to keep going. And you have to think that way with, with anything hard that you do, certainly preaching. Better to think in baseball imagery for the preacher. Uh, not every sermon is a home run. Sometimes you just get on base and that's good enough. A good, sound, solid, faithful, true sermon sustains the people of God. So I pray he uses all of these to sustain and strengthen you. But whatever kind it is, so long as it's faithful and it's true, God speaks to you and to me through the preached word. Do not refuse him who is speaking. What happens if we refuse him who speaks? For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The people of Israel were warned by Moses in very clear terms to keep the covenants and obey and to be blessed. Yet for disobedience, curse would follow. And that did follow. And so the people of God were banished from the land and the sound of soldiers' feet and swords and the death of family and then the marching to Babylon, exiled from the land. The whole point of the land is that that's where God would meet with his people. But if they would not revere and keep the word of God, they could not be with God or else God could not remain holy. But he's a just God, so he kept his word and the people were were banished. They did not escape his judgment, in other words, when they refused and were warned on earth. Well, much less will we escape, he says. This is a, a point of comparison. When you think of the Old Testament in relationship to the New, we can think of the mountains like last week. You have Mount Sinai, it's thunder and it's lightning and it's God's voice and you can't touch the mountain. But God is speaking, so there's grace there. He's giving his covenant because there's grace there, but he's still holy and there isn't a solution to our sin that would allow us to get close enough And so, in in a real way, that covenant was deficient and a problem, because we were the problem. But the new covenant, the new mountain, Zion, we've come to that place through better blood, and we have full access to God, and that's good news, bad good. I guess you could contrast the old with the new in that way. We're in a much better place. But here in Hebrews, this passage, and in so many others, the contrast is maybe this way. There is judgment in the Old Testament, and there is very much more in the New. For judgment under the Old Covenant meant expulsion from the land and all kinds of physical and human consequences. But judgment in the New is condemnation and eternal suffering and death. The God we worship and the God we fear is the God who can kill both body and soul in hell. So there's judgment, and then there's greater judgment. That's a point of contrast between the old and the new. But also, 
There is salvation and grace in the Old Covenant, and there is greater salvation and even greater grace in the New. Which leads us to this vision now in verse 26. We've heard the voice of God speaking and a warning in that voice not to refuse him. And now we have more material, even a vision, a visual picture painted for our imagination so that we might take that warning seriously. But we find also tucked in here, great comfort. At that time, verse 6, His voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. In other words, very much worse and devastating judgment. If when God shook the earth at Sinai, his holiness touching down on the earth... And that that shaking mountain and flashing lightning and thunder and thick clouds and darkness. If that signaled to us the sheer gravity and weight and majesty of this God. And yet we could stay a touch away and not touch it. You could get away from it. There were places you could go on the earth and not sense it. Oh, there's no going anywhere and getting away from this shaking. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And so you have to ask. If it's the God of heaven who is holy, who shakes the heavens and the earth, and we couldn't touch that mountain without dying because he was holy when he shook just the earth, how will any of us get out of this one? Now we remember his fire that consumed Sodom and Gomorrah in justice. We remember the flood that covered the whole earth. And he's used nature to bring his judgment before. How will any of us, could any of us survive? And what hope is there to not refuse him who is speaking? Well, that holds out some hope. It depends on what he's saying. And what, what he's saying holds out to us. It must be good. And so we keep reading. The author is quoted from Haggai, and now he's interpreting that passage. This phrase, quote, yet once more, he's doing exegesis now. He's interpreting the text. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of of things that are shaken, That is, the things that have been made. Okay? God's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And everything that he made, for everything that he made is under the curse, is is under corruption because of sin's entrance into the world, because of Adam's sin, in which we all participate. Yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And what are those things? Our God has broken into history 
and into this fallen and sinful and condemned world. And he has done so with a promise. And he has fulfilled that promise in the sending of his son, Jesus, who lived an unshakable, perfect life and who was shaken and shrouded in darkness under the wrath of God and who was raised from the dead, gloriously bright, and who is now unshaken and seated at the right hand of the Father so that all who put their faith in him remain. He remains And you and I remain. We cannot be shaken. God will judge the whole earth. And this is really good news. All lying and all debauchery and all deceit and all wickedness and all cruelty. Every form of abuse. Sexual abuse. All of this judged and put away forever. And of course we know we are part of that problem. Which is why the good news of this verse comes in the context of the good news of this book. That there is a great high priest who has gone before us, suffered in our place to take away our sin and guilt... To bring us to God. So that when God judges the whole earth. And casts out all wickedness and darkness and cruelty and evil. And deceit. We. Astoundingly. Because of his great mercy. Remain. So see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This is the God of heaven of all holiness. Who can crush you. Snap you like a twig. Consume you with fire and ought to. But this God will shake the earth and put away everything hard and every pain and wipe away every tear of every person that is his. And you and I will remain. Which is how that second verse we're looking at somehow goes from being a terrifying vision To a very hopeful vision indeed. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Those that refused him previously did not escape. How much more will you and I escape this terrifying holy God? To whom we will give account. Oh we will not. But that very God. Who shook the earth once. Will shake the heavens and the earth. And any judgment that we saw and perceived and watched on the pages of the Old Testament that I've referenced already, flood and fire and all the rest, is nothing compared to what he will do. For whatever he did in one place and one time and that flood was universal, he will do to the cosmos one day. Well, that's good news for him because he'll be left and won't have to put up with us. But it is good news for us too because he has seen fit. To offer us a great salvation so that after shaking the heavens and the earth, you and I will remain. That's great news. And that's a great clarification. Let me show you a little of where we see this around the scriptures. 
so that you will see it wherever it is because it's just about everywhere. The book of Haggai, kind of hard to get to, but maybe you'll try. The beginning of your Bibles, there's an index. Look for Haggai. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. Before Zechariah, before Malachi, very end of the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews is actually quoting from Haggai. In Haggai chapter 2, we have received, the people have, the command having returned to the land because God has graciously brought them back, a picture of salvation. Now he's commanding them to rebuild the temple. That temple, that place where God in that era met with his people. This is a very difficult task. They are a small people surrounded by great nations, some that have invaded previously and may in the future, threatened from all around. Verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. So be strong. You have my presence, everyone. Verse 5, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. I give peace. And then at the very end of the book, verse 21, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And there are initial shadowy inaugurations of fulfillment that the people would see. But God is with his people. No nation is any threat. In fact, one day he'll shake the heavens and the earth and all nations will bow. One day he will set all things right. And he will do so through his chosen servant. You can turn back to the book of Hebrews now. While I read for us several additional passages. In Isaiah 
chapter 13, Isaiah spoke this way, I will make the heavens and earth tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against their hosts. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. For as the new heavens and new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. All of the Old Testament prophets are speaking of the same vision, but with slightly often different language, sometimes fairly different imagery. In this case, Isaiah is talking much the same way about a great end time judgment and new creation that God will, will bring. And he's speaking in the same kind of way that Haggai spoke or in Daniel then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff. The wind carried them away. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Different imagery here. but The same thing. He's speaking of the nations. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. This is a great end time, complete judgment, and inauguration of a whole new creation in which righteousness and peace dwells. Brought about through God's chosen servant, who we know is now the Lord Jesus. This vision that the prophets paint of God shaking the heavens and the earth and creating a new heavens and a new earth is picked up all over by the apostles and writers of our New Testament. For I consider the present sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And the apostle Paul wrote concerning this new creation. Or Peter, but on the day the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. He speaks of the hastening of the coming of the day of the Lord. He will set on fire and dissolve the heavens and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's Haggai. That's Daniel, that's Isaiah. This is our great hope. And that great future has dawned in the gathering of saints in local churches. You think of our own church. We know what a reunion is. A reunion is like family getting together down the years, having been all together maybe in a previous era, grown up together and now spread out, but now gathering together for reunions. Every Lord's Day is like a pre-union. I made the word up. What do you think? Welcome to this gathering at Heritage Bible Church, a pre-union of the new creation. A reunion is a gathering of real family in real time in a real place. And so this pre-union 
is a gathering of real people in real time in a real place, real family, real citizens of heaven. So our church is an outpost of this future age that is broken into the present. Which, of course, can't help but lead us to our last, our last movement in this sermon. We've moved from hearing a voice of God that we must not refuse to seeing a vision to compel us as to why we must not and to give us hope in heeding his voice against other competing voices. And now we have a vocation, a glorious vocation, something that we cannot help to but do if we have really apprehended all that this God is in himself and all he has done for us in his chosen servant Jesus. Verse 28 and 29. Let us, friends, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I love this verse. Some people are like, worship has to be happy and clappy people. And hey, I like happy and clappy, but, but may pit that against serious and sober and reverent. But, but, but some of us think, you know, worship's supposed to be reverent and serious and like, What's up with the clapping at the church down the street? Well, let us be grateful. This, or let us rejoice. Let us give thanks to God. Let us be happy. Download all of your clapping verses from the Psalms right there. Let us be grateful to God for the kingdom that he's given to us. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Of which we are a part. And let us offer to God acceptable worship. With reverence and awe. It's not that the grateful part is unacceptable worship. This is all interpreting worship. What's acceptable worship? Worship that properly esteems him as holy and majestic and sees him for who he is and responds accordingly with reverence and awe, but understands at the very same time that the very possibility of worshiping him and being received by him and making it out of his judgment alive is because of the son that he sent, because of his great love for us, So we can't help but overflow in praise and joyful thanksgiving to him for all that he's done. It's all right there. We talk about acceptable worship and we usually mean, was it acceptable for me? Well, of course, the Bible wants us to ask, is it acceptable to God? In the first place, what is acceptable worship then? A couple answers for you from this last passage. It is worship that is filled with the word. The passage starts there. See that you do not refuse him who's speaking. Worship that is formed by and filled with the word on the basis of the word, which is the word of Christ. There's no coming to God apart from Christ who has gone to the Father before us and who brings us with him. There's no making it through judgment a part of our sure and steady anchor who brings us with him all the way into the heavens. And this is why worship has to be worship formed by and filled with the word or shaped by and saturated with the word of God. And so we sing it because we're a people who gather not to refuse him as speaking, but to receive his word as good and true and from him. Worship filled with the word, the word of Christ, our great high priest who bore our sin and who brings us all the way in. 
Acceptable worship is worship filled with the word. It is worship that is overflowing with gratefulness. Gratefulness, a chief mark of the Christian and a chief mark of Christ's church. Isn't that a great word? And isn't it perfectly appropriate that what went wrong in the garden, but as Paul tells us in Romans 1, they did not give thanks to God. And so their worship followed the creation rather than the creature. But in having our lives and hearts and worship set our right, we give thanks to God. So, what makes for a good shepherding group meeting? And we meet on Sunday afternoons, sometimes we're tired, sometimes we haven't quite got the sermon all the way through us, sometimes we forgot what the preacher said that morning. We may be feeling bad that we, we aren't the people that we should be, and that's good, the word calls us, calls us up, maybe we want to be more articulate, let me help us all out. Maybe leaders want more out of their groups, and, and it's good to have ambition for each other. Let me help each other out, all of us out. It's a really low bar to clear. Any of you can do it. But it costs the blood of the sun, and so it's a major achievement. Are you ready? Give thanks to God for his great salvation. And maybe you'd think of how does the words in this Sunday's sermon or this Sunday's text help me see all that God did for me? And then as we're praying and as we're talking, let's listen for each other to give thanks to God and let us give thanks to God for his great salvation. And let us give thanks to God that we have already had a great meeting if that has happened. And it's contagious, isn't it? I mean, the author is spinning around himself in his sermon here, causing us to be grateful through his gratefulness. And so let us encourage each other's gratefulness by speaking grateful words to God and about God one to another. Acceptable worship is filled with the word of God. It is overflowing with gratefulness. And it is consumed with the holiness of God. We approach him with reverence and awe for God is a consuming fire. On the road when I honked, At my best, I'm warning them about what could happen to them and us all if they keep this up. But I'm not threatening them. I don't have that much finesse with the horn. Um, Same with law enforcement. It, It may be a threat of consequences if they keep this up. But it's not that the wrath of the officer would come on the person for speeding. Oh, it might ruin their day. Suppose I could relate. In this case, consider this. This warning from heaven is not a warning about something out there. 
a natural consequence of our sin. What someone might do if you keep that up. This warning from heaven is a warning concerning a certain danger. And God is the danger. He's the one who's going to shake the heavens and the earth. So do not refuse him speaking. But God is more than the danger. He is not just a consuming fire who consumes sin and puts it all away one day. He is a God who consumes his people's worship. The consuming fire, those burnt offerings put on the table in the old covenant at the tabernacle and consumed a pleasing aroma to the Lord, representing the offering of the whole life of the person to God. And so we offer our whole lives to God as a pleasing aroma to him. And so let our worship heritage be filled with the word. Let it overflow with gratefulness to God. And let our worship be consumed with his sheer and loving holiness. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for this always needed word. We consider that we are praying to you the danger. And yet you are a God who talks to us and speaks to us with more than a word of warning, but with an invitation to believe, to confess the Lord Jesus as our great high priest who brings us to you because he's suffered for our sins. And Father, I do pray for those among us who have not looked to Jesus as the answer to this very great danger that they would wholly entrust themselves to him and so come wholly to you and be received. We thank you that acceptable worship is possible and we pray that you would fill our hearts with gratefulness, with reverence, and with awe for you are a consuming fire. Amen.